0: This is Beyond the Big Screen Podcast with your host, Steve Guerra.
1: Welcome, and today we are talking about the movie Exodus, Gods and Kings, and how the movie Exodus, Gods and Kings lines up with the canonical book of Exodus in the Jewish and Christian scriptures. We're going to give some spoilers yeah you can see it or you can't see it i'll give you a hint at the end they meet they get to the promised land we're not going to nitpick everything in this in this um episode we're just going to really look at some of the big ideas and how do they line up with the book of exodus what we're not going to do today is talk about how the book of exodus works historically We're going to leave that out. We're really just, we're taking the book of Exodus as it is, because the movie really is working to line up with the book of Exodus and not the historical Moses. Well, it does in some points, but we'll definitely get into that. So, Gary, can you give us some of the basic outline of the movie?
2: The movie Exodus Gods and Kings was released in about December 2014. It's a pretty big budget movie. It looks lush. Comes in at about 140 million bucks, runs for about two and a half hours. It caused a bit of a stir when it came out. It's directed by the venerable English director Ridley Scott, who is possibly most famous for Blade Runner, Alien, Thelma and Louise, Gladiator, but he's had his fair share of flops like Kingdom of Heaven, A Good Year, Prometheus. Ridley puts in his usual lush effort. I mean, one thing about Ridley is that you'll never really get a bad movie from him. He's a very competent director, and sometimes he'll give you a really excellent film. The main lead is Christian Bale, who plays Moses. Bale is an, I suppose you'd call him now, an Anglo-American actor, although he was born in Britain. He typically today plays an American. He's perhaps best known for various Batman movies, but he's also been in American Psycho, The Machinist, The Big Short, lots of other things. He's a major Hollywood star. The second lead would be the Australian actor Joel Edgerton, who plays Ramses the Second, greatest of the Egyptian kings. At least, if you ask Ramses the <laughs> Second, he's he's been in uh, The Great Gatsby, Black Mass. He's one of those actors you'll think, "Oh yeah, that guy." Once he's actually pointed out to you,
1: yeah, it's very much a character actor.
2: Very much a character actor. And I think these days he's gone a lot into directing in his own independent projects, that sort of thing. Uh, the support actors are, firstly, John Turturro, an Italian-American actor who plays Seti, Pharaoh Seti I, father of Ramses. John Turturro is a very well-known character actor. He's been in Barton Fink, The Big Lebowski, Quiz Show, O Brother Where Art Thou. He tends to play, I suppose I call them New York-American intellectual types I'm surprised he hasn't been in a Woody Allen film. Maybe he has.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he um, has been in Woody Allen movies.
2: Yeah. So it's a bit of a surprise to see him play an Egyptian, but I, I think he does quite a, a competent, quite a competent job. Another support actor is Aaron Paul, best known from Breaking Bad. He plays Moses' protege, Joshua. I, I think Aaron gives Quite a decent performance, but he's not given that much to do. A bit like his career after Breaking Bad. Yeah, bed, yeah that
1: sounds just about right. Yeah,
2: he's, he's underutilized, isn't he?
1: And I think the the whole point to the movie, or the whole with Exodus, Joshua really doesn't get much of a say in that whole book. So I, um, you know, maybe if they come out with the part two, Aaron Paul will have more um, more to say.
2: Ah, uh, yes, yes, Exodus the sequel, Joshua. In, in which we kill thousands and thousands of people.
1: Which sounds like a Breaking Bad episode. So yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he could just do his old character, I suppose. Uh, the other three supports are Ben Mendelssohn, who plays the chief evil dude, Governor Heggett. Ben Mendelssohn is an Australian character actor who, again, has been in many American films. And I suppose if you saw a picture of his face, you go, oh, yeah, I think I've seen him somewhere. Sigourney Weaver plays Ramsey's mother, in a, in a very small part. Sigourney Weaver, of course, is very well-known and an award-winning and beloved actress, usually renowned for playing roles of strength. Alien, of course, was a big breakout role. The final support would be Ben Kingsley, Sir Ben Kingsley, who plays Nun, the father of Joshua. Ben Kingsley is actually an Anglo-Indian actor, and he gives his usual sincere, I suppose, and dignified performance.
1: It was ben, he was Ben Kingsley,
2: Yeah, yeah, he was Ben Kingsley. Ben Kingsley seems to spend a lot of time playing Ben Kingsley. (laughs) Yeah. And, And it's only in a few sort of weird roles where he's played gangsters, where you're going, oh yeah, you can do someone other than yourself.
1: And those are really his best movies too, I think. Yeah, I think so. That film, what was it called? Sexy Beast. Yeah, that was a great movie. And he was not Ben Kingsley in it.
2: No, he wasn't. He was a real nasty piece of work in it. What we plan on doing with this
1: is we've set up a scale, plausible being the highest rank that it can get, meaning that it could very well be accurate to incorrect, and we'll split that up into any number of different ways. Any scene from the movie could go from plausible, which is the most accurate it can be, to just incorrect. That's what we're going to do. So, Gary, the movie announces that it's set in 1300 BC or BCE, if you prefer, in the reign of Seti I, fathers to Ramesses II. How does that uh, line up to the actual history?
2: That is completely passable if you accept modern or mid 20th century Christian Protestant dating of the Exodus. Now, Jewish tradition places the Exodus at about 1480 BC. That's about 200 years earlier than this. But in the mid-20th century, modern archaeologists, who tended to be Christian Protestants, decided that the best candidate for the pharaoh of the Exodus was Ramses II, who reigned about 1280 to 1215 BC. So the date that the film sets is the conventionally accepted date by, well, traditional scholarship, I suppose you could say, Today, modern scholars would say we, we've got no idea. We really don't know when it was. But in the movies' terms, thirteen hundred BC is a perfectly reasonable thing to say.
1: In a way, that's interesting. That it's two hundred years that they can zero it into that um, that kind of time frame. That is a pretty small window.
2: Yes, it is. Remember, that's just sort of traditional scholarship. And nowadays, people go, mm, mm, who knows? We don't. Yeah. Uh, who knows? I mean, really, the earliest firm date we can get for anything concerning the Israelites would be the reign of King David, which is almost exactly 1000 BC. Uh, yeah, so 400 years later, if you accept the Jewish tradition, or about 200 years later, if you accept old-fashioned scholarship.
1: This is really classic grandeur Egypt, or that's what at least the movie portrays, the the pyramids and the big statues and all that sort of thing. Does that have any historicity to it?
2: Well, I think if, even if you look at the modern pyramids, the movie depicts, I'd say, everything at about 10 times its real scale. It, it's a Ridley Scott sort of lush, huge production. But the pyramids, the temples, the court, I'm sure all the buildings, the scale of things, the scale of cities, the scale of villages, they're just depicted vastly bigger than they were in reality. But that's part of the the, um, the whole mythos of the exodus that you have this vast and mighty empire challenging this smallish group of people and so you have to depict it in a huge way but i can't see it has much relationship to uh, to reality but i put that down as a nitpick incorrect
1: yeah from everything that i've read and seen about egyptian architecture it was very heavy and a lot of the things that they showed in this movie were very light and breezy and that's not what I gathered from it. I mean, that's my uninformed opinion. But I guess for a movie purposes, it makes it makes it a lot more interesting when things are open and bright.
2: That's true. Pharaoh's court is depicted as what would you call it expansive? The, yeah, you know the actual building. Yeah, it's light and airy and breezy. But yeah, the impression I get of say temples, the columns are really quite close to each other. It's it's very heavy because the Egyptians never really worked out how to bridge wide spaces. That didn't really happen until the Romans came around. <laughs> so you have to have a lot of columns. But they did like to big build things big and tall. But, I mean, stone is not, it's not great for spanning distances. It tends to crack and break. So the actual architecture of Egypt, yeah, it's a lot heavier than depicted in the film.
1: This movie, it portrays Ramesses as a young-ish guy, maybe in his early 20s, which I don't think Joel Edgerton is... I think he's much, much older than that, but he, he comes across as a young man. How old would they have said that uh, Ramesses was?
2: That is, It is completely possible that Ramses came to the throne as a young man. It's generally believed that he came to the throne at about the age of 20. At about the age of 20. So that's quite reasonable. He wasn't an old dude when he came to the throne. And interesting, Ramses was not born into a royal family. It's only Ramesses' grandfather... That is John Tuturo's Seti I's father, who first became a pharaoh. Yeah. They came from a, a noble family, but they were basically adopted in and became pharaohs almost accidentally. So ah. when Ramses was born yeah, when Ramses was born twenty years earlier, his grandfather had not yet become pharaoh.
1: Oh wow. Uh,
2: yeah, I think it arose because Pharaoh Horemheb basically had no heirs. He was childless. So he picked a competent bureaucrat. Seti the First's father and said okay mate it's yours i'm sure you'll do a good job
1: i think ramesses really and the joel edgerton carrier character he really stole the show i think but also as we're going to see i don't know if the writers particularly knew what they needed out of him joel edgerton always did a um he always did a good job acting the the scenes but each scene Ramesses really had very different personalities.
2: Yes, I think he comes across as a fairly commanding figure. He's the sort of guy. The way Edgerton plays him, you think, yeah, yeah, I could, I could take him as a pharaoh. He seems competent. He seems in charge of things without being particularly tyrannical. He's yeah. not. De- he's not depicted as really villainous. The villain role goes to Governor Hegep. Uh, Ramses seems to be doing a competent job and he's fairly charismatic. I think he's more charismatic than Christian Bale as Moses, actually. Yeah. I think I'd prefer to follow Joel Edgerton in this film rather than Moses. Yeah, I think
1: so, too. It, the old, Ramesses, Ramesses seemed to be a... Um, he was pushed by his circumstances and the people who were around him. He really wasn't his own man. Let's talk about the big picture with the Hebrews. They're almost a character to themselves. Let's talk about how they were depicted generally, and as being an enslaved people, and how they built these great monuments to Egypt. What does that have to say with the actual book of Exodus and, for this uh, instance, history?
2: Uh, completely incorrect. Completely incorrect. Firstly, let's get rid of the idea that the Hebrews built the pyramids and the great monuments of Egypt. No, they did not. The pyramids were built a thousand years before. Any time you can place the Hebrews in in Egypt, the pyramids were already ancient before the Hebrews got there, so forget that idea that the Hebrews ever built the pyramids or the monuments just didn't happen Now, the Hebrews being enslaved, Egypt did in fact have slaves, but they weren't mass slaves sort of out in the fields, growing things, or building monuments. Most of the slaves that Egypt had tended to work for the temples as scribes or they were Artisans or they were mercenaries in the army. So they weren't worker drones. They were really quite skilled people, and there weren't that many of them. However, Egypt did have massed forced labor by Egyptian peasants. There was unpaid work for the government. That was really quite common in Egypt. Now a lot of this unpaid work was willingly willingly undertaken by the Egyptian peasants because it was felt that may help them in the afterlife. Now, interestingly, the slaves were specifically exempted from this mass forced labour. They did not have to do it at all. And in fact, the slaves that existed in Egypt seem to have had a better life than the average Egyptian peasant. So in the movie terms, and this goes back to the old Exodus movie and, of course, the book itself, it's virtually impossible that the entire nation was enslaved.
1: I've heard theories, and you kind of get the idea from the Exodus um, book that possibly these Hebrews were a client kingdom, that they were um, owed some sort of allegiance to Ramesses. Do we have any idea if that's anything like that? In the book, it's really just a blank space in there.
2: At this point in time, Egypt controlled right up the Mediterranean coast, through Canaan and the Levant and the Semitic peoples the Canaanites living there. So that's that's entirely possible. And there was a huge interaction between Canaan and Egypt. There was a lot of trade and we have evidence of entire Canaanite Semitic towns, cities near the Nile on the border of Egypt where Canaanites lived and probably migrated back to Canaan sometimes of the year, maybe back to Egypt other times. So there would have been a huge interaction between the areas yes so it's entirely possible that they were a, a client kingdom
1: we also should probably keep and put it into scale here if you took the roads that they did have pretty well defined roads you could be from egypt to canaan and what maybe about a week and a half two weeks by land and by boat only a few days
2: yes so in in terms of travel in the ancient world, it was a really pretty swift journey, particularly as you say, if you were going by boat. And there were two major roads from Egypt going through Canaan to, to Mesopotamia. One ran up the coast, and the other one, I think it's called the King's Way, ran from Saudi Arabia, a major port town on Saudi Arabia, whose name I've forgotten, and it ran around the inland side of Canaan, and then up to Syria, Asia Minor, and through Mesopotamia. And these were really well trodden trade routes.
1: How did the Israelites or the Hebrews? At probably first, we should talk about what it is all with the different naming: Hebrew versus Israelite or son of Israel.
2: This is quite an interesting thing, actually, and I, I, I just checked this today to make sure I was right. Hebrew or Ibrī in the Hebrew language is the word used to refer to the children of Jacob slash Israel in Genesis and Exodus. So they, they're called the Hebrews in Genesis and Exodus. Thereafter, in the later books of the Bible, like Kings and Chronicles, they tend to be called the Israelites. So the Hebrew, the Hebrew is a term which seems to be used to emphasize the relationship to Abraham and the patriarchs. After they become a kingdom under David, the name that the Bible tends to use is Israelite. But that's confusing because after the United Kingdom of David split, it split into two kingdoms. the north Israel, in the south Judah. So the northern people were called Israelites. The southern people were called Judeans. In the Bible itself, in the later books, it's often really unsure if the Bible, when it uses the word Israelite, is referring to the totality of the people, including the Judeans, or just the members of the kingdom of Israel. For my own benefit, in my own podcast, when I want to refer to the totality of the people, I tend to call them the Hebrews. And when I specifically want to refer to a member of the later kingdom of Israel, I call them Israelites.
1: For the purposes of this um, movie, though, Hebrew and Israelite can be almost used interchangeably, though. Yeah, pretty much. How did the Israelites slash Hebrews wind up in Egypt?
2: Historically, there was always a huge amount of interaction between the peoples of Canaan and the Levant and the Egyptians. Canaan was subject to quite frequent famines. Egypt didn't really have famines thanks to this really large river it had. So when times got bad in Canaan, a lot of Canaanites would migrate towards the Nile Delta so they could at least survive. And this practice seems to be reflected in the classic story told in Genesis where Joseph, the youngest son of Israel, is left for dead by his brothers, but ends up in Egypt, becomes Grand Vizier to Pharaoh, high position in the government, And when when a famine occurs in Canaan, the brothers come back to Israel and say, man, we're starving to death. Have you got any wheat? Joseph knocks them back, plants some evidence on the brother Benjamin, whom he threatens to kill. And there's some argy-bargy for a while. And eventually, Joseph and his brothers make up together. And Joseph says, come on, guys, we'll bring the whole family, all 11 of you and me, that makes 12, and we are going to settle in Egypt. So according to the story in Genesis, that's how the Hebrews start in Egypt.
1: And the way they leave it, this whole Israel lock, stock, and barrel, the Hebrews leave Canaan and go to Egypt. There's no Israelites in Canaan at this point?
2: No, there isn't actually, come to think of it. You're quite right. At this point in the story, the entire nation of Israel, which admittedly consists entirely of the patriarch Israel and his wife, his 12 kids and their wives, so it's only a a family of 26 people they emigrate to egypt and in 400 years they've turned into this gigantic nation which if it was reality they would have had the highest reproduction rate in human history
1: yeah i wish uh, i wish i would have taken the time to figure out what that would have to be the um per child rate on that i mean it would be astronomical
2: i actually did the calculations to, to see how how, how you how, <laughs> I actually did the calculations and, and it would, it would have been the highest reproduction rate in human history, something like 10, 12% per annum, whereas in the ancient world, the population increase rate was something like 0.1% per annum.
1: And I mean, even in the modern day, five or six is absolutely off the wall, off the charts. And, um, and in Western Europe and um, places like the US, two is high.
2: Now, all we can say is, if the story in Genesis is true, they were reproducing like bunnies, and in fact, that's sort of that's sort of emphasised in um, Exodus. And when Pharaoh tries to kill all the firstborn or something, he can't because they're born before his soldiers can get there. The Hebrew women are so sturdy, so strong, they just pop them out, and they're like four year four years old. And Pharaoh's just heard that this kid's been born, and already he's like a little Samson. <laughs>
1: Speaking of reproduction, let's talk a little bit about the Moses' birth story. In the actual book of Exodus, they go into a story of how Moses floated down the river um, to escape one of those culling of the firstborn of Israel. And that story actually has a lot of motifs with more Middle Eastern stories like Sargon and other stories. But if we just focus in right here, they don't really mention that story in in the movie Exodus, Gods and King, but they do go back to the story that Ramesses and Moses grew up together. How does that line up with what's in the actual book of Exodus?
2: I'd write that as inconclusive. The birth story of Moses, as you say, is the baby in the basket story where his mother puts him into a basket, sets him up out on the Nile to avoid Pharaoh's attempted extermination of the Hebrews, and then it's a blank. It's just a complete blank. The next time we meet Moses, he's grown up. about Christian Baal's age or something. There, nowhere does Exodus say that he was brought up as a prince of Egypt. It does say he was brought into the household of Pharaoh's daughter, but the Egyptians were pretty snobby. They wouldn't have accepted this, this baby in a basket as oh, a random Egyptian. He's one of us. It's quite probable that he was brought, he was brought in oh, to be a slave or a servant or something like that, but that he grew up with Prince Ramses II, and became his chief advisor as the movie depicts it well no that that is definitely wrong and and all of Moses youth is a complete blank
1: and now a brief word from our sponsors
0: Casino. and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. Eighteen plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?
1: I think the only thing, well, I love inconclusive, because then we can fill in the blanks with whatever we want. Yeah. I think the only way Prince of Egypt, that doesn't seem to work at all, but where if Moses could be a close advisor is if we play Israel as the client kingdom, then maybe Moses is some sort of hostage, royal hostage situation which there's just nothing in the text that supports that. That's just wild conjecture. But also, the thing to me that almost makes sense from reading the text is that maybe Moses grew up in the court as a household slave or as a household servant with his mom and as the um, servant to Pharaoh's sister. If you read between the lines, I mean, there again, that's a lot of conjecture and ifs that Moses would be a, um, a warrior prince type.
2: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I just can't see the Egyptian court taking in a, basically a random stranger. But that he could have been, yeah, a prince or someone high up in the client kingdom, I think that would be perfectly in accord with Egyptian practice. The movie does imply that Moses was brought up by his sister, Miriam. And I'll, I'll give him okay, well, a rare nitpick we're going to do, a rare nitpick. The book of Exodus says that Moses' own mother, Jocheved, brought him up. Miriam just doesn't appear until quite quite a lot later in the book.
1: We've talked quite a bit about Moses' youth and how um, the book of Exodus is pretty thin. And the movie, I guess with the movie, you have to build, you can't just have it that Moses shows up in a uh, in a um, reed basket and then ta-da, he's 20-something years old. Like, you need a narrative screen line to get him to that point. But now that we're at that point, John Taturo, Seti the First, he sends his son Ramesses to attack the Hittites in well north and outside of Egypt proper. Does that actually happen?
2: Yes, that is completely possible. Seti the First moved to assert and establish Egyptian control over the Levant because at the top of the Levant in Asia Minor was the other great empire of the day, the Hittites. uh, Seti I wanted certainly a buffer between himself and the Hittites, and he wanted to make um, sure that he controlled the trade routes, both to the Hittites and through the rest of Mesopotamia. So where the movie depicts Seti I sending his son Ramses to move against the Hittites, yes, that actually did happen as far as we know. The young Ramses apparently was often by the side of his father, in military action.
1: How does that battle... So they fight the Great Battle of Kadesh, and that's a historical battle. Would that is that how that would have gone down in the movie? It's a spectacular affair with chariots flying everywhere, and it was quite an interesting affair. How does that... A, that's not in the Book of Exodus at all. How does that line up with the historical Battle of Kadesh?
2: There's no big battle since... In in Exodus, none at all. Uh, But the battle as depicted in the movie, I'll rate as passable, the battle depicted is the Battle of Kadesh, which was not fought by Seti I, but was in fact fought by Ramses II. But, oh, well, let's give them a little bit of leeway here. It does depict Moses as a military commander. No, wrong, no, no evidence for that whatsoever. (laughs) Nope. The battle itself is a reasonable way to dramatically describe the conflict between the Egyptians and the Hittites. Uh, the account of the actual battle of Kadesh, according to Ramses, it was a brilliant victory. A, just a completely brilliant victory. History seems to say it was a nil all draw. As far as you know, it's the largest chariot battle in history. And Ramses' account, now, I'll just give you a little description from one of the inscriptions of Ramses. Now, this is an extremely freely translated version of the inscription by the great British archaeologist flinders petrick and he wrote this in about 1910 this translation i tell you what guys it go go onto the internet and l- find a picture of flinders petrick he looks like a pirate he has an enormous fearsome beard and he looks like he should have a blunderbuss in one hand and a cutlass in the other but he was a great uh, archaeologist now in this freely translated version ramsay says then the king he lashed each horse and they quickened up their course And he dashed into the middle of the hostile Hittite host. All alone, none other with him, for he counted not the cost. Then he looked behind and found that the foe were all around. Two thousand and five hundred of their chariots of war, and the flower of the Hittites and their helpers in a ring, cut off the way behind, retreat he could not find. And they gathered all together and closed upon the king. And then it goes on for another couple of hundred lines. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's like, not one of my princes, of my chief men and my great, was with me, not a captain, not a knight, for my warriors and my chariots had left me to my fate. And basically the poem describes how Ramses II has been abandoned by his whole army, but because he's such an impressive dude, he himself goes out and defeats the entire Hittite horde. And that's exactly the way Ramses like to be depicted. I'll I'll give you a description of Ramses by uh, Professor Emeritus John Ray at the University of Cambridge. And I'll I'll quote this. Ramses II is the most famous of the pharaohs, and there is no doubt that he intended this to be so. In astronomical terms, he is the Jupiter of the pharaonic system. And for once, the superlative is appropriate, since the giant planet shines brilliantly at a distance, but on close inspection turns out to be a ball of gas. Ramses II, or at least the version of him which he chose to feature in his inscriptions, is the hieroglyphic equivalent of hot air. Nowadays, this ruler's name is known to every knick-knack seller in the Nile Valley, a posterity which would not have embarrassed him in the least.
1: I think it's great, too, because there is a scene in the movie where Seti I is getting the lowdown of what happened in the battle, and he kind of keeps asking, now, what really happened?
2: Oh, yes, I've forgotten that scene, yeah. (laughs) And Ram just goes, it was me, it was me,
1: it was me. Even though moses dramatically saves him and they have like the buddy battle scene when they get back to court in egypt it's all oh i did so great and i did such a great job even though he was really uh, historically and in the movie he almost got the whole army routed
2: and one thing the hittites in the film are depicted as sort of vaguely asiatic types of some sort whereas in fact the hittites are some of the earliest indo-europeans that we know so they would not have looked asiatic at all they wouldn't even look like modern turks though they were thoroughly indo-european i've got no idea what they actually would have looked like but certainly not as depicted in the film
1: yeah i think they've pretty through linguistics linguistical analysis they've completely connected them they were the first indo-europeans to have broken off of the main grouping or tribe um some theories say that the indo-europeans actually started in turkey asia minor but i think the predominant theory is that they started in the basically southern ukraine southern russia area and a first group swung off and settled into turkey so their version of indo-european was very different than later Indo-Ne- indo-europeans but it was still very indo-european
2: I think the uh, the only early and maybe it's the same age Indo-European language we have is Sanskrit. Yeah, and I think
1: that still might even be a bit later than them. I think that that part came from they had to really portray the Hittites as completely foreign. They couldn't show the Hittites as being more or less equipped like the Egyptians, or you know, they had to show them as a foreign element. You know, that actually reminded me somewhat of the movie 300
2: oh we've got to do that movie someday.
1: yeah that'll be <laughs> and actually i mean i don't want to go too far off the beaten path but there was a lot of reasons why they made them the persians look that way but i think it's it's sort of the same reason that the, the hittites were made that way i think as the audience we're supposed to perceive them as completely alien and not that they were a group a nation that was in co- regular contact with egypt that's not how the filmmakers wanted us to view them we wanted to see them as completely the other
2: yeah i suppose that's quite reasonable you know they're meant to be alien vaguely evil barbaric actually that's one thing in in the movie the egyptians are depicted as extremely civilized except for the fact of having like hundreds of thousands of slaves yeah <laughs> apart from that minor minor detail they are depicted as intelligent, artistic, intellectual, yeah, you know, the very pinnacle of civilization.
1: There's a few more points about the battle and the military that's worth discussing. Now the movie portrays Moses and Ramesses discussing tactics. Now they wouldn't have done that in the book of Exodus because there's no evidence that Moses was a tactician or a military man, but um As far as how the Egyptian military was organized at that particular time, how did that stand
2: up? That is completely passable. I remember when Moses and Ramses are discussing tactics, Ramses refers to the names of the four divisions of the Egyptian army. And certainly the Battle of Kadesh, there were in fact four divisions, and they they were named exactly as Joel Edgerton says. I think one was the Tar Division, Seth, Amun. And I forget the fourth one. So th- they've got that right. Someone's been reading at least some rudimentary history. However, one thing they got wrong is the use of cavalry. The Egyptians did not use cavalry. They hadn't worked out how to sit on a horse and fight from it. The horses were only used for chariots. There, wasn't, there was no cavalry in the Egyptian army. And Mo- in, the, in, the book, in, in the film, Moses leads the cavalry. So he's leading a non-existent military arm
1: for a nun a non-existent military man.
2: Yeah, for a non-existent military man, for an inc- incident which never happened in the book or in reality. Or um, <laughs> so it, yeah, okay. Complete invention.
1: After the battle, they go back and they they all explain themselves to the to Seti the 1st. Seti wants to send him to a city called python that they're building, the Hebrew slaves are building, but he doesn't really want to do it, so Moses goes and does it instead. Um, and his job is really to vet the accounts of the governor of that city to make sure because uh, the books don't line up at all the the debits and the credits aren't lining up and that's where Moses meets Joseph's father Nun and Moses is told about his Hebrew heritage, even though he does not believe it one little bit, even though was, um, he was raised by his mother and uh, <laughs>
2: sister. <laughs> yeah, that's a huge plot hole, yes. I've been raised by these Hebrews, but I'm not one. What? Okay. And I was found in the river. Okay. It's, it's a plot hole in the book of Exodus too. In Exodus, after the baby in the basket incident, the first thing we hear about Moses is when he kills an Egyptian. And at that point, Moses knows that he's a Hebrew. There's no indication in the book that he never did not think he was a Hebrew. I've never quite understood that, that particular plot hole. But it, and in the film, that's an, it's another glitch with that too, isn't it?
1: It has to be explained. It's not explained in the book why he killed somebody, an Egyptian. And I thought that that was a little clunky in the movie that he kills a... Um, so two guards, and then he suddenly, oh, wait, I am a Hebrew after all.
2: Yeah, how did that happen? Now, that's not in Exodus. In Exodus, in the in the movie, Governor Hegep, Ben Mendelsohn, the guy with the dodgy accounts, sends two of his soldiers to kill Moses, and Moses ends up killing them. That's not in the book at all. In the book, Moses does kill an Egyptian, but it's just like a random Egyptian.
1: And as soon as he kills the Egyptian, he heads out of Egypt, (laughs) where in the movie, we still have a couple of other um, issues to be had. Inexplicable scene of Moses killing these two guards and then discovering that he's for some reason a Hebrew leads into another just really baffling scene. Probably, I think, the weakest scene of the whole movie of where Moses then comes out as a Hebrew. Can you? St- I'll set the scene up for you, Gary, and then you can take a whack at this pinata. Ooh, yeah, okay. <laughs> They're in, I guess you might say, Seti's dining room, and it it's enormous, and it's it, there's a cornucopia on the table. Uh, Joel Edgerton, Ramesses brings in Moses's um, sister Miriam. And they're all just chit chatting, you know. It sort of reminded me of a mafia movie where they try to get
2: like the person
1: <laughs> calm, and then it, they drop the hammer on them. And in this particular scene, Joel Edgerton tells he's he's dancing around the subject that um, the Ben Mendelsohn Viceroy character, Governor characters, dropped a little bug in his ear that Moses is actually a Hebrew, not an Egyptian. And so he calls in Miriam, his um, Moses' sister, and he tells her to put her arm on the table, and he threatens to chop it off if Moses doesn't admit he's a Hebrew. Obviously, the scene isn't in the book, but can you t- t- give us your take on that scene?
2: I don't understand it at all. Just before the scene starts, Moses is at the point where Ben Kingsley has told him he's a Hebrew, but Moses himself doesn't believe it. Suddenly, we get to this scene where Pharaoh accuses him of being a Hebrew. And at that point, Moses should have said, No, nah, where'd you get that idea from? And then nothing should have happened. But instead, Joel Edgerton threatens to cut off Miriam's hand. And maybe Moses should have said, Oh, don't do that. You know, why are you doing that? I, I don't think at that point Moses even knows that Miriam's his sister. He couldn't possibly know that Miriam's his sister is no. his sister because, no, Miriam is a Hebrew. Moses doesn't think he's a Hebrew. So. The whole thing is just, the whole scene is just one massive non sequitur. I don't know who wrote it, but it should have gone in for a rewrite.
1: Yeah, that was just bad writing. He jumps the Grand Canyon of being a one hundred percent Egyptian guy to now I'm I'm a Hebrew. That's it. that didn't need to happen in one scene.
2: No, and I don't understand how Christian Bale suddenly decides that he is a Hebrew. I mean, he's been told that he is, but doesn't believe it. And then suddenly, oh, yeah, of course. I'm a Hebrew. And, oh, yeah. That must be my sister. What? What? Yeah. Did I have a stroke at that point and miss something? I don't know.
1: And is it because of the threat that he doesn't want to see this um, girl get her arm cut off? And that's uh, that doesn't make sense. That's not what people do. No, no, it doesn't.
2: No. I, no, I don't understand the whole thing.
1: And that was a, it was um very forced dramatic scene. Now we get to the classic scene in um, all Exodus movies where Moses is sent out into the wilderness because he's being exiled from Egypt. And in this case, Moses is the some of the soldiers he's brought to, like, the symbolic marking point, uh, the uh, border of Egypt, and the soldiers are sort of sympathetic to him, but not Pharaoh's mom at all, and Moses flees to Midian. Now, in the book of Exodus, that actually happens. What happened in the movie?
2: In the movie, he is forcibly kicked out and sent to die in in the wilderness. In the book of Exodus, Moses just runs away. It's not he's not forced out. He flees and he ends up with with some Midianites. In in the movie, yes, I suppose it's meant to be a dramatic point where he's sent out to die. And he will die. But instead, he finds this—he uh, he finds a bunch of Midianites. And in accord with the Book of Exodus, he marries a woman called Zipporah, or Zipporah, and they have a kid called Gershom. So the idea that he's sent to die wrong, in fact, flees, according to the book.
1: I mean, because it's just kind of silly... Pharaoh can kill whoever he wants. He's about to chop somebody's arm off for no reason, but for this case he's going to send them out to die in the uh, in the desert. Mm. <laughs> why would he why would he possibly do that? If he wanted to kill Moses for being a Hebrew, like who cares, you know. You know, there's 600,000 Hebrews living. If he wanted, he could have killed Moses if he wanted to or he could have just put him to python with the rest of the hebrews there's no reason to have killed him or kill him by exposure
2: well no exactly yeah why didn't if ramses wanted to do something with him yeah surely would have said oh you're a hebrew okay go join the chain gang
1: that was the part of the movie where i kind of liked it better in the um in the cecil b de the 1956 cecil b de mill version where the Charlton Heston Moses grows into being a Hebrew before he leaves.
2: Like okay, I, I don't remember that bit of the movie. It's all pretty vague.
1: I and the, I mean the movie was what about twelve hours long?
2: <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah, it probably had an intermission, didn't it?
1: Oh, I'm sure. It, yeah, it definitely had an intermission. But I think with that, with this movie, that whole for a movie that was about two and a half hours long runtime, Exodus, Gods and Kings. I felt like these key scenes that they should have probably have built a little bit more. They really chopped him up. So now we have Moses. He makes it through the wilderness and he gets into Midian and he marries Zipporah, and he's he's living the life there more or less, about as idyllic as you could possibly imagine. You know, he's got he's married. He's this. He's that. He's got flocks and. There is the mountain of God, and the Midianites even call it the mountain of God or something, or the mountain where God lives, something to that effect. Moses is tending to his sheep or his goats. He loses a couple, so he goes up into the mountain, and there's a scene where there's a rainstorm, and then he gets swept away in a landslide, and then we don't know. This is the point where he meets God, and what happens when he meets God
2: God appears as a fairly pugnacious small boy called Malak or Malak. Now, Malak in Hebrew means angel, so, okay, that's reasonable. So it's quite different to the depiction, the normal depictions in films about Moses meeting God. This is no voice, booming voice in the wilderness. This is just a little kid about 12 years old with a very sort of mysterious manner. Now, you found out something about Ridley Scott's decision to cast a kid as God, didn't you? And now,
1: a brief word from our sponsors. Hey everyone, I'd like to say something about a new product I've tried called Calatrin. Doctors endorse it, nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calatrin is for healthy weight loss. I have taken calatrin myself, and I can honestly confirm that I've lost weight, I sleep better, and I have found relief from a joint injury that I sustained in my arm. Calatrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. And I am reaching of that age where things decrease. Taking calatrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calatrend has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President Day Sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free, plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word BBS 230605 and I'll send you a link to this special offer. Text the word BBS 230605. Give Calatrin a try. I think you'll enjoy it, and I'll talk to you next time.
0: They were some of the most powerful men who've ever lived. They've waged war, forged peace, and altered the fates of billions of people. And yet they were just as human, just as flawed as you and me. They were the presidents of the United States, and they are the subjects of the history podcast, This American President. In each episode of This American President, we explore how flawed men have managed this awesome responsibility. To listen now, go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search This American President on your favorite podcast platform. War has played a key role in the history of the United States, from the nation's founding right down to the present. Wars made the United States independent, kept it together, increased its size, and established it as a global superpower. Hi, I'm James Early, host of the Key Battles of American History podcast. In each episode, I discuss American history through the lens of the most important battles of America's wars. To start listening now, go to parthenonpodcast.com or search Key Battles of American History on your favorite podcasting platform.
1: Yeah, that was, I really wanted to see why he, what his thought process was that, and there was a couple of interviews, one in Time Magazine and then one with the New York Times, and he never really gave a really meaty answer to it. I felt just a little unsatisfied with it. He talked a lot about the process of casting that particular child, but not why he picked a child in the first place, but we can do all sorts of conjecture of why that was a good or a bad choice, but I would have really liked to have known why he decided
2: that. Yes, because it seems quite a consequential decision to make, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, and I think it's interesting saying that uh, giving him the name Malak of Angel, is he God? Is he an angel? Like, I don't know what they were going for. Or in the movie, you don't really even get a sense, is that just vision that Moses is having and not a supernatural vision, but almost like a psychotic vision psychotic isn't the right word a what would be a better word for that just a mental like a trauma vision from being swept up in that landslide they never really are perfectly clear on if these visions that he's having are just all in his head or if they're actually happening which i think that that was kind of a cool thing that they did in the movie
2: yeah i read a christian movie review site and it reviewed Exodus, Gods and Kings, and was generally fairly favorable towards it. But it put forward an interpretation which would never have occurred to me. It said that you could argue that the small boy is actually Jesus.
1: Oh, that's an interesting way to, from a Christian perspective. But I don't think that that's the way I would have read it, it from the actual the book, that, that he really is talking to the transcendent God.
2: And I'm sure if you asked a rabbi about that interpretation, he'd have a fit.
1: And I would even say from a Christian perspective that I don't think that that would be the way that they would normally interpret that particular scene.
2: Uh, no, no, I agree with that. I thought it was an odd, a bit of an odd thing to say, actually.
1: I mean, por- portraying him materially like that, that would have to be something that Ridley Scott would answer for, theologically speaking, from Christ- from the Christian perspective. If God is in a human form, that would be Jesus, but I don't think that that's the standard line interpretation of that. I mean, if you want to talk about like tie that into something from the New Testament, that sounds a lot like the Transfiguration from Matthew, where when they uh, Peter sees like God, and I think it's Elijah and somebody else that's like he's blown off of it out of his sandals. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's Elijah and Moses standing with uh, Jesus, and that's
1: you know the transcendent god and moses comes out you know like he had touched um you know the core of a nuclear reactor it's interesting but i don't think that that's necessarily what they were getting at yeah that's it's it's odd but it's some it's kind of thought-provoking too okay so moses he talks with god and god tells him that you know moses asks who are you and he says i am but now like in the booming sense, he just, the kid says, I am. And so that ties back to where in the book of Exodus, God says, I am what I am. So Moses, he has to leave his family in Midian, which that's an interesting scene where his, you know, his wife is super against it. How does that play out that scene in the actual book of Exodus?
2: In the book of exodus a character who barely figures in the movie is moses brother aaron when god convinces moses to liberate his fellow hebrews in egypt he has to make a a few pretty strong arguments moses in an extended conversation of god in the book pleads that i'm not an orator man i I just you know i'm no good at public speaking i get tongue tied i can't say anything and god goes no i really want you to do this moses so tell you what your brother Aaron, he's a really good after-dinner speaker, winner of the Toastmasters <laughs> Award ten, 10 years in a row, 10 years in a row. So how about Aaron will do all the talking and you'll do, you know, like the leadership thing. And eventually Moses says, yeah, okay, okay, let's do that. And he and Aaron go back to Egypt. Aaron always gets overlooked in the movie versions. He's, always, he's one of the characters you think, who's that guy again? Oh, yeah, it's Aaron. Okay.
1: And he really does play much more of a role in the book than he does in the
2: movie. Oh, yes. In the book, he is absolutely huge because Aaron becomes the founding father of the entire priestly class, which is something, well, again, you don't really get that in any movie version, do you? And the the book of Exodus makes a huge deal of this. In Exodus, one of the things about Exodus is that the chapters devoted to our story and the story that people know, only occupy 17 of its 40 chapters. That's only 42%. Six chapters are devoted to the revelation on Sinai after the Hebrews have left, and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of laws. And there's 14 whole chapters, 14 chapters, which describe in tedious detail the construction and management of the tabernacle, which is like the huge tent which houses the Ark of the Covenant and that sort of thing. And it discusses the role of the Levites in managing the temple. And I think there's Two whole chapters set later in the story where Moses sets up the entire priesthood of which Aaron will be in charge. And there's a lot of blood and guts description of how Moses slaughters rams and covers all the Levites in blood.
1: (laughs) And when we're talking about detail, every single thing, how long the curtain should be, what kind of wood everything should be made out of how long a pole should be how many <laughs> yeah. ringlets the pole should have to hold up the curtains that's being dictated from god to moses how the wood should be polished who should make the stuff is all particular detailed step by step for about 10 chapters almost as long as what the the leaving egypt story
2: an example of some of the detail from exodus 25 so god is telling moses how to make all this stuff and typical instructions are you shall make a lampstand of pure gold the lampstand shall be made of hammered work its base and its shaft its cups and calyxes and petals shall be of one piece six branches shall issue from its sides three branches from one side of the lampstand and three branches from the other side of the lampstand and on one branch, there shall be three cups shaped like almond blossoms. And on, and on, and on, and on. You actually start yearning for IKEA instruction manuals, which are just a few diagrams and a few words of Klingon. The the, <laughs> the instructions in the Book of Exodus just, just, just keep going. It's really endless. Yeah, it's just endless.
1: But that's, we're still, let's just back up a little bit to Egypt because there's quite a few scenes here that are... Really divergent from the book. Moses breaks into Pharaoh's palace. There's a lot of dramatic scenes with Moses and Pharaoh leading us up to the actual plagues. Now, in the movie Before the Plagues Ever Even Happen, which is actually a short part of the movie, Moses puts together a, I guess you would call it a guerrilla army to fight back against the Egyptians. He's basically telling God he'll do it his way. Because he's uh, such a military man and God kind of gives lets him okay you you do it your way we can lay that one out there's nothing in Exodus about that
2: no there's nothing about an insurgency operation there's nothing about a military uprising against the Egyptians there's nothing about any sort of resistance by the Hebrews to the Egyptians at all nothing zero zip in in the book Aaron once he's accepted as leader of the Hebrews simply Aaron and sorry Aaron and Moses simply go to Pharaoh and say, "Hi. We would like to take the Hebrews out into the wilderness and we'll do 3 days of religious celebrations and then we'll come back again." That's it. They just go to Pharaoh with a request. No one no one's throwing spears at anyone. It's just a simple request. So that's completely wrong as depicted in the movie.
1: Now we get to the good part though, the plagues. Oh, the plagues. What happened to the plagues in the movie version?
2: In the movie version, the 10 plagues, 10 plagues or nine, no, yeah, 10 plagues, the 10 plagues are described really, very quickly. maybe 10, 15 minutes of screen time. That's about it. The Egyptians are uh, uh, suffered a river of blood, plague of frogs, plague of insects, plague of skin infections, all depicted fairly naturalistically. It's like, yeah, this could have actually happened without any need to, you know bring God into the matter. And there were some minor differences in the plague order. Some of the plagues are omitted. It's sort of a bit disappointing. I thought that the plagues were de- depicted quite well. You know, the actual visuals, etc., were really, yeah. Quite, yeah, really quite arresting. And I thought, oh, yeah, I could have taken another 20 minutes of this stuff. This is really cool. But they're done very quickly in the film, whereas they could have omitted a lot of other scenes, I think. I think so. They could have got rid of the entire military uprising thing, for example. I think that occupied about 20 minutes.
1: Oh, easily. Now, they don't explicitly say it in the movie, but they said it a lot in the book of Exodus that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. How does that come through in the movie?
2: I think that's depicted interestingly in the movie. Yeah. One of the things which I think most people don't really get is that in general, it's not a case of Pharaoh himself resisting the attempt of the Hebrews to leave. God himself sends a plague, Pharaoh usually says, okay, you can go now. But then God himself says, no, I'm going to make Pharaoh change his mind and suffer more punishment. That's a fact that isn't really covered. Now, the film sort of has its take on that. When Moses at some point meets little Malak again, this pugnacious kid that I want to just sort of hit for some reason, I don't know. (laughs) know. He looks like the sort of kid who thinks he knows everything. Yeah. Moses himself goes to Malak and says, oh, can you stop this? Because, you know, I used to be friends with these guys. I actually quite like a lot of them. So can we cancel the plagues? And Malak says, no, I want revenge. So I think that's how the movie depicts this hardening of the heart thing or gives a justification to why he's forcing Pharaoh to suffer more punishment against Pharaoh's will.
1: And they kind of go through the conflict cycle, too, where initially all Moses and Aaron are asking for is to be able to pray out in the wilderness. Pharaoh says, no, there's a plague or two, and then Pharaoh says, yes, but then his heart is hardened, and the plagues get ramped up, and so on and so forth, until you get to the ultimate plague of the death of the firstborns.
2: Yes, the death of the firstborn. In the movie, that's depicted pretty much as it is in the book. I think it's quite a heartbreaking scene because it's set at night. The angel of death, as it's depicted in the book, spreads out over Egypt. On the soundtrack, you slowly hear this tremendous wailing and screaming rise as all these Egyptian children are killed. When Pharaoh finds his own firstborn killed, I thought that was quite touching.
1: Yeah. They really show it too, in the book especially, that – it was all-encompassing. If you weren't an, a Hebrew who had participated in the Passover ritual, you were going to have your firstborn killed in that. It didn't matter if you were for Pharaoh or against him or you know, just some poor slob on the streets. You were affected by that curse.
2: I think the book of Exodus, if I remember correctly, specifically says, for example, that the people in the prisons were affected i mean these are prisoners what have they done wrong well obviously they had done something and they were in prison but okay I'll yeah. that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then the hebrews so finally okay they're like all right just get out of here in the movie the hebrews steal away with just the clothes on their backs and whatever they can uh, scrounge together before they hit the road and the actual uh, book of Exodus, they're loaded down with gold and silver and spices and everything you can imagine.
2: Cattle, buckets of stuff. And if you read in Exodus, the description of the building, the temple, it's all solid gold, silver. It's They must have been carrying hundreds of kilos of pounds of this stuff. So they're not just going away with a couple of crackers and falafels. They're 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 leaving with vast amounts of goods.
1: And then old old Pharaoh, his heart's hardened again, and he decide in the movie, he wants to get his revenge, of course. I mean, what else are you going to do? You got to go get revenge. He keeps following the um, Hebrews, even though he's going into territory that really doesn't lend itself to his chariots, but he keeps following them and following them all the way to the water of the, they do call it the Reed Sea in the movie, right? I believe he didn't call it the Red Sea. Oh, okay. I think they, uh, it sounded, I mean, with Christian Bale, you never know what he's really trying to emphasize or not. So they get to this waterway, and then what happens?
2: And actually, just before that, if you remember, they're going, Pharaoh decides to take his chariots through the mountains on these little witty windly mountain passes, which conveniently have a mountain on one side and a sheer Cliff face drop on the other side.
1: Yeah, of course. they of course have to.
2: <laughs> yeah, of course they have to. <laughs> now, oddly enough, chariots work best when they can be amassed on a plane. They work really badly on a mountain path, which is almost exactly one chariot width wide. And Pharaoh's saying, come on, we've we got to go, guys. Speed the chariots on. And of course, half the chariots fall off the cliff. And at this point, evil governor Negev gets run over by a chariot and falls off a cliff. So he's out of, out of the movie. Pharaoh ends up with maybe, I don't know, half his army at the water's edge while the Hebrews are trying to cross. The waters do open, and again, it's a fairly naturalistic sort of thing. It's not like in the 1956 film where the waters turn into this vast, roiling wall of water, which is, you know, metres, dozens of feet high. The waters simply sort of evaporate, slip away. It's like they ooze into the ground or something. And the whole water thing, I mean, I mean, it looks like the body of water is only about two foot deep anyway. So that's how it's done in the movie. And the Hebrews start to cross. And I thought that was a good scene.
1: Yeah, I thought it was. Um, I liked the scene or how it carries through, which connects well to the book, is that the people are constantly grumbling. You know, they're always... Uh, condemning moses oh you're you know things were things weren't so bad in egypt and now we're uh you know stuck out here in the middle of nowhere you know like you said you could barely get a good falafel out here and then you know they're blaming it uh moses for everything every woe that they have and
2: i thought that that came across well in the movie it's a minor point in the book of exodus but a big point in the book of numbers of the story of the hebrews in the wilderness where they they staged, I think, seven major rebellions against Moses. And every point they're going, oh, no, this is horrible. Oh, man, this is the worst road trip ever. Can we go home now? You know, Egypt, please, please.
1: (laughs) And Moses keeps providing for them. And I think that I would have liked to have seen more of that built into it, because I think they could have built a human dimension into, um, you know, the people, because that is a plight that normal people have you leave one thing that you think is really bad you know you work for the job that you just think's the crappiest job you could ever imagine in the universe and oh this next job's going to be great and then you find out that the new job was worse than the last
2: <laughs> yeah i've I, yeah i've had that <laughs> uh, and you must admit the hebrews must be thinking well they've been 400 years in egypt and now we're going to canaan how many of them were going Where's Canaan? Why are we? What? Why? What? Who? Why are we going there? You know, half of them must have not known where why they were going to this particular place.
1: There's a particular scene in the book of Exodus where um, Moses is up with God at the in the mountain, and the people completely lose it, and they demand that Aaron melts down all their gold and m- makes a a graven image out of all their gold for them to worship. You know, I guess you'd think Aaron would say, no way, let's wait until Moses gets down from here and we'll figure it out. Nope. What does uh, Aaron do? You know, he goes, makes the molds, pours the gold, leads the worship in front of this graven image. And what happens, Gary? Aaron gets in big trouble, right?
2: Uh, No. (laughs) What happens is that nothing happens to Aaron. Absolutely nothing. I mean, Moses is outraged. What? What are you? What are you doing? Making a graven image? We don't do that. Okay, we just don't do that. And Aaron, who's been the leader in making this, he gets basically a, a death stare from Moses for about for about a minute, and then Moses does absolutely nothing to Aaron and proceeds to order the Levites to kill three thousand of the Israelites who participated in this, but not his own brother. Now, is that the ultimate case of nepotism or what? I know he gets a complete pass on it, and I think actually one thing a lot of people may not realize is that this graven image is not an image to a foreign god. This is actually a bull, and it's meant to be Yahweh himself. It's an image to Yahweh. So in that sense, then they're not forsaking Yahweh at all. It's just that they've made an image to him, and that's a huge no-no.
1: They, they really, you could say, that they had the best of intentions.
2: They did have the best of intentions. Images of bulls were really, really common in the Middle East as symbols for the god uh, El, who's also another name for the Hebrew's god. So they're really very common images, and it would have been perfectly natural for any Canaanite or Semite uh, to make this sort of image. But no, Aaron gets a pass. And throughout the whole damn book of Exodus, whenever something goes wrong that's Aaron's fault, he gets a pass, and someone else dies.
1: I really think that Aaron always gets the... um gets pushed down the playbill in these movies because it just doesn't really work. You need a clear bad guy, which is Ramses. He fits the bill very well, even though, really, in the book of Exodus, he's not really the ultimate bad guy. He's just kind of having his strings pulled throughout the whole thing. And you have your good guy, Moses. Aaron just doesn't fit in there very well as like a co-good guy.
2: No, he doesn't, does he? A very ambiguous figure. So you have to think that the author of those particular bits of Exodus had something against Aaron, and they got left in the book. You wonder why they weren't excised. Particularly that Aaron is the, is the figurehead and fountain of the entire priestly order.
1: Especially given that Moses Moses is really as much from the line of Levi, Levi as Aaron is, correct?
2: That is Correct.
1: Which they're both they both have double Leviism, if you will.
2: Yes, because Moses and Aaron's father married his own aunt, which makes Moses and Aaron simultaneously brothers and cousins and God knows what else. Yeah, a
1: whole mix of I mean you'd have to you'd have to draw the charts for that.
2: Yeah, I think if you bought some you know, some of these ancestry type software for keeping track of your family tree, you wouldn't be able to input the information. Does not
1: compute. The movie leaves us off with a really cool last scene of Moses kind of trundling along in his cart, and he's a really old man, and the cart has the Ark of the Covenant in there, and you have an old lady who kind of goes by and reverentially touches the cart with the Ark of the Covenant in it. How does that And the tabernacle, how does that line up?
2: Not with Exodus. If you touched the tabernacle or the Ark of the Covenant, instant death, unless you're pretty much Aaron, maybe a few other Levites. God is really picky about, you know, physical contact. He's he's not a touchy-feely sort of guy. She would have been, in this very brief scene where this woman touches the cart, she would have been hit with lightning, or the ground would have opened up before her, and she would have sunk into it. Now, the tabernacle in the movie is depicted as this little... Cardi thing. And the Ark of the Covenant is depicted as oh, something like a, a steamer trunk, something like that. In the book of Exodus, as we said, there's dozens of chapters describing not only the tabernacle, which is a vast tent like structure, which would cover a quarter of a football field, but the Ark of the Covenant itself, this is this incredibly elaborate, rich box, decorated in gold and ivory pomegranates and all that sort of thing. And it is part of a throne of God, which has cherubim and it gives details of how the wings of the cherubim touch each other in the throne god's footstool is the ark of the covenant so compared to exodus the little cart and, and the crummy little ark is the exact opposite of the opulent reality oh, reality if you can call it that depicted in the book
1: i think what they were going with with that scene is that almost is much more christian where people revere an object and touch it reverentially And that just does not line up with, like you said, with Exodus, you would burst in instant flames and (laughs) that's, you know, it would take out half the people around you (laughs) after you touched it. And she wouldn't have even been in anywhere near close physical proximity to that. You know, there would have been an army of Levites around there, lesser Levites and uh, higher Levites closer to the, you know, the. Uh, Tabernacle.
2: In in fact, the book of Exodus describes in quite huge detail the specific marching order of the Hebrews. And it's all centered around the tabernacle. And as you say, it's literally surrounded by various grades of Levites as this vast bodyguard for the thing. And the rest of the Hebrews march in phalanxes or divisions or something. So that's not at all as the movie depicts it.
1: I suppose my biggest nitpick with the movie like Exodus is... And the most of the movies that surround the Exodus is that they're really focusing on those 17 chapters. They skip over and then, boom, Canaan, here we go, Canaan or bust. When there was a lot of interesting st- things that happened in the middle, like when Moses meets up with Zipporah again and with Jethro. You know, Moses is running around with a, like a chicken with his head caught off, trying to run everything, and Jethro's like well, why don't you have judges? And, you know, like Jethro's telling him, criticizing him, or telling him how he should really run the show.
2: Yeah, yeah, you're taking on too much work, Moses. Delegate, delegate.
1: I think that that, those are scenes that would have been really interesting if they had played it up that more so that Jethro and Moses are really tight. Moses is a little aloof after he's been in the desert for a while, but, oh, hey, Jethro, how you doing? And how does that play a part when, if Jethro is sort of like a father figure to Moses? I think that that's a lot of really interesting material you could do in an interesting way.
2: Yeah, that would have been quite good to put in, but that's, that's nowhere, is it? No,
1: not I I've, I've never seen that in any um film adaptation of Exodus.
2: No, not at all. All the movies really pretty much wind down straight after the, they've crossed the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army has been spectacularly destroyed.
1: That's a, I mean that's essentially
2: the end of the movies is
1: that point.
2: And in the movie in, in the final scenes with Moses, he's depicted as an old man and the Hebrews are wearily trudging through the wilderness. So you get the impression they've been trying to get to Canaan for years and years and years. And, of course, in the book of Exodus, they take 40 years to get there, whereas it's only a couple of weeks by foot in reality, and people were doing it all the time. This is not a major trick. But Exodus says, no, it took them 40 years. What
1: ultimately happens to Moses?
2: Moses dies. He dies at the end of that 40-year period before he ever gets to see the Holy Land, Canaan. Now, at the end of those 40 years, Exodus makes a big point of saying that hardly any of the Israelites who left Egypt are alive. And in fact, there's a grand total of three Israelites left alive at the end of that 40 year period who actually left Egypt. There's Moses, there's Aaron, Paul, Joshua, and in some stories, there's also Caleb. That's it. Three people out of about 600,000 are left. So the entire generation of the Israelites who left Egypt are dead. They've been spiritually purged in the wilderness, and there's a whole new generation who are spiritually pure who can now get to Canaan. God tells Moses, you are not going to get to Canaan. Why aren't you going to get to Canaan? Because in one of the stories, Moses disobeys God's instructions in a really completely trivial fashion. God has a hissy fit and says, no, you're not going to make it. You're going to get to see it, but you will not touch the Holy Land. So that's what happens to Moses and I think it's said specifically in Exodus no one knows where where he's buried.
1: Moses is such a central figure in um really the whole entire Old Testament but he just he just dies where other characters like um Enoch was that in the canonical book of the gospel where he's raised into heaven?
2: Yes. In the entire yeah in in the entire Old Testament there are only Two people who make it to heaven. Only two people. Enoch, whom the book of Genesis says is taken by God, and the prophet Elijah, of whom the same thing is said. Every single other person in the Old Testament simply dies. They do not go to heaven. They just die.
1: And you'd think of anybody who would um, who would raise to the level of being raised into heaven, it would be Moses.
2: You'd think, wouldn't you? Because Moses is the towering figure of the entire old testament the only person who comes close is david but david is depicted as a pretty wily earthy human moses is depicted as a a brilliant leader an incredibly holy man and also the humblest man who ever lived so he's an enormous figure and yet he himself doesn't make it to heaven
1: i mean come on he's um you know hanging out with god for weeks at a time
2: yeah he has extended conversations being given a law code the size of an encyclopedia. I mean, having to write all that down, that must have been fun.
1: Now, what do you think, Gary? Overall, what is your takeaway from this movie? What do, you, um, what do you think of it? And if you were to rate it, what would you give it?
2: I enjoyed it quite a lot, actually. It's partly saved by the visuals and the lush look of it and some of the um, good performances. I like the dialogue, which, not, which is not the usual stilted, whither thou goest Moses, prithee, you know, sort of thing. It's naturalistic. I enjoyed it. I think it's good family fun. And if you can sit through the whole two hundred and a half hours, well, okay, there's some really nice depictions. I would have liked the plagues to have been longer, but the actual crossing of the reed or Red Sea. That was good fun. I'd give it at least three out of five. It's worth streaming or, or renting or whatever.
1: That would be pretty much my assessment. I feel that at at two and a half hours, it was really stretching it, that there were some scenes that, that did get a little long in the tooth, and that if they had tightened that up a little bit, two hours would have flown by. Two and a half hours felt like kind of a struggle to get through. But I would say it's a, it's a solid three out of five, and... It, you know, it's you can very easily get it on whatever streaming you like. And it's it's definitely a great movie to plug in and listen to with the, your whole surround sound set up and, you know, on your screen and turn the lights off. That it is a good movie to test, you know, to put all that equipment on
2: Eleven. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's definitely a big screen movie.
1: I would have liked to have
2: seen it on the big screen. Oh, that's true. It would have been quite impressive in an actual cinema, wouldn't it?
1: I, that, I think maybe, I mean, I, we can't go in a time machine. I probably wouldn't have watched, I would have been disappointed to have paid 12 12.50 US per ticket to see this movie. I think at box office prices, this is probably like a one and a half stars at home. It's a solid three.
2: I can't say you won't be disappointed, because some people will. Be. <laughs> but, um, I've seen a lot worse. Yeah. I don't think I'd be able to sit through the whole 1956 film. I I saw it when I was a kid, but I don't think I could sit through it again.
1: I don't know if how they show it in Australia and here in the US, I think it's the Saturday before Easter or maybe it's the maybe it's the weekend before that. But there's a regular time that they show it and they show it every single year almost uncut on a saturday night it starts at about seven o'clock and it ends at after midnight Mm. and i have to say i try to watch i couldn't i wouldn't be able to sit through the whole thing but i do watch i try to watch bits and pieces of it it's almost like the super bowl or something like that you got to watch a little bit of it
2: oh okay it's obligatory to watch at least say like the parting of the red sea or something like. yeah
1: (laughs) that's one movie we can't do I think we can't sit down. We'd have to talk for about 12 hours. Uh, (laughs) We could do the blow-by-blow of that movie. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Big Screen podcast. I've been your host, Steve Guerra. Of course, a big thanks goes out to Gary Stevens of the History in the Bible podcast. Links to learn more about Gary Stevens can be found at historyinthebible.com or in the show notes. If you'd like to learn more about Beyond the Big Screen, see show notes, and connect to social media, go over to a2zhistorypage.com. I'd love to hear from you. We can talk movies, and I'd definitely like to hear your ideas for shows. Please share ideas for movies to cover, guests, or topics. Email me at steve at a2zhistorypage.com. If you like what you hear, I would really appreciate you leaving the show a rating and review on iTunes. Ratings and reviews really help a great deal to let me know what you think about the show and how to make the show better. We'll see you next time beyond the big screen.